Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. That's the first time we meet these guys. And they're driving Land Rover Discoveries with all bullet holes in it. So I say to him, what's all these bullet holes? I said, the Yanks don't know these cars. So every time we come up to a checkpoint, sometimes they put rounds in us. This is True Spies. Episode 103, King of Scotland Yard. We were basically in the parade room, standing there, and, the, and Desi's giving out these medals and stuff. It's 2007, toward the end of the war in Iraq. At a British army base, the UK's Secretary of State for Defence, Des Brown, is handing out medals. The desert air crackles with polite applause. But in Baghdad, peace is never guaranteed for long. And then next minute, and all the soldiers, they dive to the ground because they're absolutely aware of what's going down. But Desi's like stood wondering what's happening here. For a split second, Brown stands there bewildered as Iraqi insurgents outside the base let fly with mortar after mortar. Fortunately for him, a split second is all he's allowed. So myself and one of my guys, we run at him, he runs first, jumps on Des, Des goes down, I jump on him and Des. Two body-armoured protection officers immediately cover the Secretary of State, putting their backs in the way of the incoming shrapnel. And they call it indiscriminate fire, but it's not that indiscriminate, it's actually pretty good. They're pretty much good on target. And the rounds are coming down. <laughs> Maintaining their focus in spite of the pounding mortar fire, the officers rush Brown into a secure building. So we laid him down and we laid on top of Des. The protection team has done their job well. The protectee, or the principal, if you want to get technical, is safe. The mortars go quiet. The insurgents have fled or been neutralized. Do you think you could have handled the situation? How good are you under pressure? And my first reaction, I'm going to tell you absolutely truthfully, there was hard cover behind me. So as soon as the first mortar hit, my first reaction was, I turned to go to hard cover for myself. That was my first reaction. Bang, turned to hard cover and then kicked in and thought, that's not my job. So it was kind of, save yourself. No, don't save yourself. In this episode, you'll meet a true spy who knows the real meaning of selflessness. Nobody's of higher value than me. <laughs> yeah. But but the reality is, and this is what you have to run to, if he gets killed, we're going to be there forever in a day fighting some war we don't need to be fighting. Right? My name is Carlton King, and I guess my claim to fame is that I served in Special Branch from 1986 
through till, if you want to make it collectively, until I left the police service in 2012. Within that, I also uh, was seconded to the Secret Intelligence Service, better known as MI6, as a case officer. And I was in that service between 1997 and 2002. In this episode, we'll be following Carlton on a protection assignment that took place a few years before the one we've just heard. An assignment where, instead of body armor and instinct, he had to rely on wit, charm, and intelligence-gathering tradecraft to protect his principal. Get ready for a rare glimpse into a truly behind-the-scenes operation. Have you ever watched a politician touring some far-flung or dangerous locale and wondered, how on earth did they get there? No, probably not. That's because people like this week's True Spy make sure everything ticks along smoothly. In this episode, you'll discover why there's nothing harder than making something look easy. You'll find out exactly what it takes to arrange a VIP's visit to one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Spoiler, it's exhausting. And very, very complicated. And it's a story that was very nearly never told at all. No. Official Secret Act, what does it basically mean? It's frankly a catch-all law that says if you in any way, shape or means do anything that undermines the security of the United Kingdom, you can be prosecuted, basically. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is home to one of the world's oldest intelligence communities. It's also one of the most secretive. So in, in Britain, it's rare for people to write about any of these agencies. So when I wrote my book, I wrote it for two reasons. One, the special branch had been disbanded, which I thought was a very, very bad idea. And number two, I wanted people to know that black people played a part in all parts of British society, be that in the special branch or be that in the secret intelligence service where I'd also worked. Carlton has fought long and hard to shine a light on the covert work carried out by Britain's intelligence agencies. He's not a whistleblower, mind. He's done it all by the book, T's crossed, I's dotted. But he does believe that where possible, the British public should be aware of the actions carried out in its name. No, that's not what government thought. <laughs> so they tried to prevent me from putting my story forward. Cue redactions, edits, more redactions. After four long years and minus a spooked publisher, Carlton was forced to self-publish his memoir. And I think that's the sort of pressures that you get in the UK when you want to speak openly about this sort of domain. Would you pit yourself against the establishment? Not sure? Maybe you'd feel more confident if you'd spent long enough within the establishment. Because throughout his eventful life, Carlton King has worn many hats. And a few helmets, too. But the majority of his career was spent climbing the ranks of the Metropolitan Police Special Branch. The Special Branch was created in 1883, predating MI5 and MI6 by more than a quarter of a century. Its initial aim was to combat Irish Republican terrorists who had mounted a campaign of bombings and assassinations on British soil. In one of those places it blew up was Old Scotland Yard. So they formed this body called the Special Irish Branch, as it was called, to defeat this action. It did, and the government thought, it's great, we'll keep this secret agency. 
and we'll drop the, the sobriquet Irish and it was then just known as the Special Branch. So that's how it was formed. So to explain what the branch did, it was then part of the quadrupled system of intelligence. So that was the Security Service, MI5, the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, and GCHQ, which is Signals Intelligence, and et cetera, et cetera, and then Special Branch. But it was the only one with executive powers. Until 2006, when it was disbanded, if you were caught spying on British soil, it would be the branch who came a-knocking. The Special Branch arrest them. Right? And the Special Branch bring that to court. So that's the difference. There's powers, with, they couldn't carry any firearms in the old days, the, uh, the security service. The Special Branch could carry firearms and did in the surveillance teams and so forth, so on and so forth. So there are big differences with it. Within the Special Branch, there were several specialised squads which dealt with different aspects of the national security picture. A Squad was the team responsible for protecting Britain's most senior politicians, as well as visiting dignitaries. And for every visitor visiting the United Kingdom who's a head of state, head of government, or at political threat to the United Kingdom, receives special branch protection. That's how it used to work. And I used to run that office. If you're subscribed to this podcast, you'll know a few standard routes into intelligence work. The military, for example or university recruitment fairs. Carlton, however, took the road less travelled. Cue the music. It's the mid-70s, and in a crowded pub in the northwest of England, Carlton King is manning the decks. My job was to, you know, be a disco comper sometimes, to be a DJ sometimes, whatever. So I did most of the big stars of the 70s. They'd come onto the show in workingmen's clubs. I'd introduce them and then play music at the same time. I know what you're thinking. What kind of career path takes a Lancashire 20-something from pub discos to the special branch? Well, rest assured, it doesn't get any less unusual from here. I was spotted by doing this one day by a guy who was, I don't know if you remember the, <laughs> the strange group called the Wombles, the Wimbledon Common. The Wombles, a popular British novelty band of the 1970s, was staffed by a group of highly skilled session musicians. Some, understandably, had loftier ambitions. One of their number planned to relocate to West Germany where he would play for the soldiers stationed at the US Army bases there. And he was looking for a DJ to complement his set. So he came to me and said, listen, would you, would you like to do this? And I had an agent and said to the agent, well, what, will, what, will this, what will happen? What will be the circumstances? What's the money like? And the money was good. So I said, great, okay, I'll do it with you. No. For a while, Carlton led a semi-nomadic existence touring across West Germany. Eventually, he was offered a residency at a high-end club near Frankfurt. It's here that Carlton's story begins to veer into more familiar territory for listeners of this podcast. So it was a, a good club, they were making big money. And this one guy used to come in, who was from a good family, he wanted to open a private detective agency. Now, I know that sounds weird, but it, but it is what it is, and he was like 19 or 20 or whatever he was. And he came to me and said, listen, nobody would think you were a detective. 
He said, you know, you're speaking German fluently, you know, in the language. Um, nobody, you know, you're a black guy. Nobody would think, he said, would you come and join and join with me to open an agency? And I said, no, no, he's a pat him on his head. And he'd come in every other two, three weeks and keep saying the same question. A detective? Carlton was all right, thank you very much. Perfectly happy just where he was. And then the club burnt down. But this guy has heard about it. So he ran over to me and said, listen, I've heard the disco's burnt down. He said, um, now is your chance to come and be a detective with me. So I was kind of, yeah, I thought, why not? Let's see what he's talking about. Carlton's friend dreamed of starting his own agency. But in the meantime, he was working for a larger private detective company in a town nearby. He thought that his English friend would be a welcome addition to their roster and was quickly proven right. Carlton was hired as a house detective, a kind of store detective with the power to detain and charge the sticky-fingered. Before long, the one-time DJ had caught the law enforcement bug. He saw a new path unfolding before him and knew he had to take it. Through friends, he knew that the American army bases were like small towns unto themselves, rife with opportunities for wrongdoing and the uncovery of wrongdoers. He applied at a nearby base and was offered a job as an investigator for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, or AFES. AFES is responsible for providing American servicemen and women with their creature comforts, from imported foods to cars and even guns. In West Germany, AFES catered to a population of over 1.5 million personnel and their dependents. So these are massive things. Snack bars, cinemas, uh, petrol stations, they have them all. So it's just like, it's basically their own cities, basically. They have little cities where the Americans used to live. Where the military police had no jurisdiction over civilians, American or otherwise, AFES could lead investigations into shoplifting, fraud, violent crime and trafficking within their on-base facilities. So you work with the whole of the military from both Army and Air Force, and obviously FBI for civilians. So that's the way it worked. Carlton's new boss was a former FBI agent who was more than happy to regale his new hire with tales of the world beyond AFES. He was particularly fond of recounting his dealings with the Met's special branch. And he said, if I were an Englishman, I'd be in the special branch. Intrigued, Carlton decided to take his boss at his word. And I wrote to the embassy, British embassy, and said, this is in Germany where I was living, listen, I want to be in the special branch. And they sent that to the Met, and the Met sent back to me saying, that doesn't happen like that, but if you want to be an officer, come down next time you're in the United Kingdom, which I did. In 1984, Carlton returned to the UK and completed a six-month training course for the Metropolitan Police. As a probationary officer, he was assigned to a police station in London. At the time, tensions between Britain's black communities and the Met, a predominantly white organization, were making headlines. There's been a lot of demonstrations and things like that. So I put myself forward to be on what was known as the District Support Unit, which was like a riot police training aspect. And uh, amongst that, we went on various demonstrations and all sorts of various riots. 
As part of the District Support Unit, or DSU, Carlton was on the front line of British policing at a time of severe unrest. As one of the Met's few black officers, this could make for uncomfortable work. In 1981, a fire in the South London neighborhood of New Cross claimed the lives of 13 young black people. Four years later, based on police inquiries, the coroner had ruled out racially motivated arson. Many in the community still believed this to be the cause of the blaze. A demonstration was held to protest the coroner's findings. It was felt on the street level that the police had somehow not done their work, had hidden the fact that it was believed that right-wing racists had carried out the action, and therefore the police were seen as negative towards this situation. Now, I happened to just be on the demonstration, as I said to you, part of the DSU, and so we were walking by the side, normal clothing, and I was spotted, because in those days, an officer who was black was extremely rare. So I was spotted by, let us say, some of the more hot-headed black youth on the demonstration, and I could see they were whispering and talking amongst themselves, and I could see there was a problem there. And then some of them started to G up the crowd, shouting Judas, Judas, coconut, whatever, whatever, whatever. Singled out, the crowd began to close in on Carlton. Senior policemen in the DSU made the decision to remove him from the fray. So the superintendent actually came down to me. He was running the operation, or chief superintendent, in fact. And he said, listen, this is too dangerous. So I stood down and all the crowd then started jeering and laughing. Ah, he's, he's, he's gone, blah, blah, blah. Today, Carlton is sanguine about the issue of race in policing during the 1980s. To be fair, frankly, the racism in the police was no better and frankly no worse than in general British society. But I felt I could make a difference in the police. That's the thing. But in truth... Carlton didn't harbour any particular ambition to stay in uniform. His heart was set on the special branch. Each year, there'd be a process where the branch would ask for individuals who wishes to be selected to special branch. The first chance he got, Carlton submitted his application. Once it went into the branch, they looked at it because they put desirable criteria. And desirable criteria were things like languages, Morse code, shorthand, writing skills, etc, etc. That would probably narrow it down to about half of those who applied. So that half would then sit the special branch exam, which was basically three papers. The branch's written exams tested applicants on their political awareness, their critical thinking skills, and their writing ability, essential for providing intelligence reports. In the end, only 10 applicants from across the Met were accepted into the special branch annually. Carlton was one of them. His route to the branch had been circuitous, to say the least. But he couldn't wait to get started. Carlton joined the branch as a detective constable, a DC for short. Over the following months and years, he served with various squads within the branch, learning his trade. Eventually, he moved to A-Squad, the section responsible for protecting Britain's high-profile politicians. And you'd learn everything about how to work a protection, how you 
look at analysis, how you obtain what you might need, when you obtain dog searches, explosive searches. A good protection officer must gather the intelligence that will enable them to manage their operations in unfamiliar territory. How you, you might, uh, if you're going overseas, what that means, who you contact, what assistance you get from other agencies, etc, etc, etc. So it's all about, first of all, a very strong bodyguard course, which you had, so you learn how to be a bodyguard. But more importantly is the intelligence, utilage within that. Of course, it doesn't hurt if they're also handy with a weapon. So you were taught by the Met Firearms Unit how to utilise firearms. So that was generally uh, sidearms and machine pistols. And your shooting skills are then kept up every two months. So you learn, you know, you keep using, and, and it's fast-paced shooting, it's not general shooting. It's fast-paced shooting, close-quarter combat shooting. You know, shooting from the hip, shooting from the shoulder, sh uh, shoot, shooting from sitting in a seat, shooting through a car windscreen. By the late 90s, Carlton was a detective inspector with several successful operations under his belt. So I'm a DI now in the branch. There is an agreement made between our commander in charge of special branch and the head of SIS, the chief. And they said, you know, we'd like one of your guys with some expertise to look at countering terrorism because that was the en vogue thing at that particular time, as it still is. In some ways, the British intelligence community is a small world. In 1997, Carlton was seconded to the SIS, or MI6 as it's more commonly known, as a case officer working on counter-terrorism. Unfortunately, the strictures of the Official Secrets Act forbid him from discussing his work there. Some things are just non-negotiable. However, during his time in the service, he was able to cultivate a number of contacts who would prove helpful when he returned to Special Branch full-time in 2002. As a senior officer in A-Squad, it often fell to Carlton to attend meetings of the Royalty Ministerial Visits Committee. That's the body in charge of deciding which government ministers are authorised to travel abroad. And they basically make decisions and say, right, this person's going here, can he, she go, can you protect them if they do, should they get protection, etc, etc. It's now 2003 and the Allied invasion of Iraq is in full swing. The Visits Committee have convened to discuss matters of vital importance to British interests in the country. Unfortunately, Carlton King is not in attendance. He's at the firing range. I'd gone for a shoot to keep my capacity going, and the superintendent who had gone came back and called me into the office and basically said, the Americans have basically, very, very quickly, it's basically as they, as they hit Baghdad. The Americans have said they're going to have a conference about what happens when the war's over. The American forces have captured Baghdad and are on the brink of victory. Now they're preparing to portion out the contracts and assets that will sustain the occupation. But what does that mean for Carlton? Now, as you know, all states enter war for the spoils of war. And we were no different. So the Prime Minister basically said, we need to get somebody at that meeting, somebody of power and stature, who can put down what the UK gets out of Iraq post the war. 
So that role was provided to Mike O'Brien, who was then at that time the Middle East Foreign Office Minister. Mike O'Brien, it should go without saying, wouldn't be travelling to the conference alone. So it's, can you get Mike O'Brien to this meeting? We don't know where it is as yet. The Americans are going to do it. We don't know where it is. We know it's in Baghdad, but we're not certain where the place is. There's no time to waste. If Britain wants its cut from a newly conquered Iraq, then O'Brien needs to be at that meeting. Carlton has just days to prepare for a safe ministerial visit to Baghdad. He needs to perform a thorough assessment of the dangers that face the minister in Iraq and take steps to avoid or neutralise them. He can't do that from Scotland Yard. And you'd have to leave today. The clock is ticking. And with the kind of notice Carlton has, flying into a war zone is far from straightforward. So I had a lot of connections in a lot of different places. And one of the first connections that I used to try and get me what I needed was an RAF contact, which I had in the Provost Marshal, for him to try and find out whether we can fly into Baghdad. You know, let's make it dead easy. Let's get the RAF to fly into there. That would be easy, wouldn't it? Far too easy. As it happened, the RAF weren't currently flying into Baghdad. British operations were centred on Basra, miles south of the capital. With more time, perhaps arrangements could have been made. But right now, no dice. I then tried, obviously, people from the, my old office in, in SIS. The SIS explained that they might be able to assist Carlton once he was in country. But again, a direct flight was off the table. Likewise, Carlton's contacts in the Royal Military Police stationed in Iraq were also willing to lend a hand once he was on the ground. And they gave me the name, and I'll call him Jerry, of a guy called Jerry. He said, if you hook up with Jerry, he's got some kit. He can help you out once you get into Baghdad. All well and good, but to get to Iraq, to find Jerry, Carlton would have to delve even further back into the annals of his address book. So I contacted an American friend of mine, whom I had from when I used to work for AFES. He was a military police investigator. He then was a CID, Army CID, and he was heading up the protection detail of Donald Rumsfeld. So I contacted this guy and I said, listen, I need to get to Baghdad. You know, what can you do for me? Finally, some success. The American contact was willing to pull some strings for an old friend. But if Carlton was hoping for a direct flight, he was about to be sorely disappointed. He said, if you can get to Kuwait, I can possibly get you to Baghdad. Well, that's a start, at least. Confident in his ability to arrange a flight to friendly Kuwait, Carlton began to make preparations for his last-minute journey. So now I've got to get a team together, I've got to get weapons, and I've got to get myself to Kuwait tonight. First, Carlton reached out to a friend of his, an expert driver, the kind of man you want behind the wheel when things start exploding. So the war's still on, you know that? Yeah, 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 of course, good for no problem, we'll do it. I said, right, what I want you to do, get me some sat, a sat form, at least two, if you can. Get me some body armor if you can get it. Get me this, this, that and the other. In A-Squad, as in any workplace, 
proper delegation was a hallmark of good management. Second only, perhaps, to a keen nose for hiring the best talent. I then saw a DI who I knew was heading up another DI, so same rank as me, who was heading up the Defence Secretary's protection. And I wanted him because I knew the Defence Secretary always has contacts in our military. Carlton's colleague had the ear of an Air Vice Marshal in the Royal Air Force. That could prove to be a useful contact in the event that his team needed to fly internally from a British base in Basra into Baghdad. So the three of us, this merry band, we couldn't get any body armour, we couldn't get anything sorted out, we could just get sidearms, that's all we could get. But even a couple of measly sidearms can cause a world of hassle when it comes to international travel. But there was no time to wrestle with bureaucracy, however well-intentioned. Carlton would have to seek forgiveness, rather than permission. We took a commercial flight to Kuwait uh, on British Airways. When we landed in Kuwait with our weapons, we got nicked. <laughs> of course, because we're carrying illegal weapons as far as they're concerned. Predictable but not unworkable. So, as I said, we were arrested straight away. So we sat down and I told the driver, the guy, a friend of mine, I said, bring some Met memorabilia with you, special branch memorabilia. So he brought that and I said to the immigration fellow, I said, you know Scotland Yard? I said, you ex, you know, ex-British colony connections. I said, you know what special branch is? He said, yeah, yeah, we know special. I said, I've got some special pens here. Very few people get this memorabilia. I said, I'm going to give you a special pen, a special holder. <laughs> Can you let us through, my friend? So he said, yeah, OK. So he stamped the immigration bit. A little bit of charm and a free pen can open a surprising amount of doors. Carlton and his team were through the first hurdle. But their ordeal wasn't over. Kuwaiti customs were, perhaps understandably, nervous about allowing plain-clothed secret policemen to carry weapons in their airport. So the customs guy said, OK, you can bring these weapons, but you can't carry them. Luckily, Carlton had thought ahead. He'd arranged for two RAF men to wait for the special branch team at the airport. They were authorised to carry weapons in Kuwait, and Carlton was able to hand his off to them for safekeeping. All by the book. By now, hours of precious time had ebbed away. The RAF escort drove the team to a plush hotel, where they could rest up before renewing their efforts. He invited the RAF men to join him and his team in the suite. We'll get you some food, mate. You stay with us. We're going to look after you. Carlton's generosity wasn't without motive. He was behind schedule, still stranded in Kuwait. His RAF escort had information that might just get him and his team to Iraq in time for the conference. Specifically, they had a line to the RAF Air Vice Marshal in Kuwait. Bellies full, they were happy to arrange a meeting. So anyway, we get to the HQ, so we drive to the HQ and the uh, Chief Marshal sees us and we explain mission for Prime Minister, blah, blah, blah. We don't have anything that flies. Can you use your power with the Americans to get us on a flight? to Baghdad. I'll see what I can do, says the Vice Marshal, with his equivalent. Back in their suite, the special branch team took stock of their paltry stash of equipment. They'd barely had time to charge their solitary satellite phone 
before Carlton's cell started buzzing. It was the Air Vice Marshal. He said, listen, if you jump now, you can go to El Hadid, get on a flight now, you can go and get on this flight and go into Baghdad. Super, fantastic. The RAF men drove the three branch offices to a nearby American airbase. After asking a few questions, Carlton discerned that his old employers, AFES, were running flights into Baghdad. Carlton persuaded a US Air Force sergeant to authorize the flight. This was not technically within his remit, but like the Q80 officials, he was susceptible to Carlton's charms. So cut long story short, he does it. I don't know if he got done afterwards, but he, he did it. And he got us on the flight. Finally, the special branch was airborne once again. We fly off. We land in Baghdad. And we land at Biap, Baghdad International Airport. So now we're there, and there's a whole lot of soldiers lying around all over the place. The Americans had taken Baghdad International Airport a couple of days prior to Carlton's arrival. Air transports screamed onto the tarmac. Soldiers got the thousand-yard stare on them who've been fighting the battle. Now, Carlton needed to contact Jerry, the Royal Military Police Officer, who would be able to furnish the branch with more appropriate luggage. Machine pistols, smoke grenades, Kevlar the kind of things that incur serious excess baggage charges. I said, listen, let's get on the sat phone straight away. I'll try and get to that. So the sat phone doesn't work. Flipping out, sat phone, it's lost its charge. Carlton and his team had been forced to leave their hotel in a hurry. There had been no time to charge the sat phone. So when I was struggling, so I said, listen, I'm going to try and see the OSI. See what they can do. There's got to be OSI here. OSI. That's the Office of Special Investigations, a body attached to the US Air Force, which conducts counterintelligence and criminal work. A spiritual cousin to the special branch, perhaps. So I got to OSI HQ, explain who I was and who I am. Scotland Yard, what the hell Scotland Yard doing here? Yeah, this is what I'm doing. It's something I can't really, well, you need to tell me something. I can't help you. Nobody comes off this base. Nobody. I said, well, we need to get off the base. No, no, it's too dangerous. Nobody's coming off this base. I said, listen, my friend, I've got a mission to do for our prime minister. I need to get off this base. This time, his pleas fell on deaf ears. Carlton needed to think laterally. I said, well, who do I need to see? He said, well, if you go over and see the colonel, maybe the colonel can do so. He's the other side of the base. The OSI brought Carlton another mad dash through the chaos of Baghdad International and returned to their HQ. Carlton spoke to the colonel in charge. Somewhat unhelpfully, the colonel said it was fine with him if it was fine with the OSI. We need to get the OSI to do this for us. The OSI, unsurprisingly, had not changed their minds within the last hour. However, with the colonel's blessing, they were willing to perform that most essential of military duties, delegate. Well, the OSI said, we won't do it, but what we'll do is I'll send this, and I'll never forget him, this specialist who was a sergeant. So basically this guy details this unit, a sergeant and seven, to take us on this bus. 
The sergeant and his men were duty-bound to follow their new orders and escort Carlton to a more established base. But that didn't mean they had to be pleased about it. So they take this bus and they say, right, we're going to take you down there and we'll take you to the nearest big base we've got, American military base, which is where they have all of the connections and all of the information's coming into it. It's the command centre for the area. So these guys do not want to do it at all. He said, you know, if you get me killed, I'll bloody, you know, all this sort of stuff, where the hell are you bits? After a breakneck bus ride through the bandit country of central Iraq, the bus, bristling with long guns, finally screeched to a halt at the other base. So they drive us through, we get through, and they drop us the earliest place they can, and then they turn that bus around and they fire off. So we walk up there, and people look, and then we come to try and get to where the HQ place is, and somebody puts a 50 cal on us. That's a 50 caliber machine gun. And says, who are you guys? Who are you, where are you going? That's it, you know, I've got a police cap on. Police, yeah. British Police Scotland Yard. You're shitting me, Scotland Yard? Yeah, 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 he says, from this bunker he's got. Okay, come over slowly. So we go over slowly. Me and the two guys, so we go over and then we start talking, oh, Scotland Yard, God damn that. Let me tell my Colonel, we got some British guys here. Once again, the branch's reputation preceded it. Despite the warm welcome, Carlton was glad to meet a fellow Brit at the new location. So the first time we hit Brits, and there, was a, there was a guy from the Highlanders who was a major, great guy, Scotsman, fantastic fella. So I said, listen, this is the predicament we got. We need to get out, and I need to see this guy, Jerry, RMP, Royal Military Police guy. Do you know where he's going to be? Because I need to see him because I need to get stuff together to sort this operation out. The Scottish major explained that there was, in fact an RMP base, in the centre of Baghdad, no less. He said, I don't know how you're going to get there. I said, well, listen, I need to get there right now. One step forward, two steps back. Carlton's progress so far had been physically and mentally exhausting. But the end was in sight. Because now the special branch were finally able to make the call they'd been trying to make since their arrival in Baghdad. So luckily, by then, we managed to get some comms with Jerry. And he sent two of his RMPs. Jerry's welcoming committee left something to be desired. So that's the first time we meet these guys. And they're driving Land Rover Discoveries with all bullet holes in it. So I said to him, what's all these bullet holes? I said, the Yanks don't know these cars. So every time we come to a checkpoint, they just, sometimes they put rounds in us. I said, so, so why are we driving in them then? <laughs> why are we still driving in them? Why are we not using an American vehicle? He said, we're British. I said, I know, mate, but is it worth getting killed for? After countless sleepless hours and more setbacks than he cared to think about, Carlton finally established contact with Jerry and the RMP. Now, at long last, he had access to the resources he needed to give Mike O'Brien a shot at attending the conference. Now, he could get on with preparing for the Secretary of State's arrival in country. You didn't think the job was over, did you? In truth, 
it was only just beginning. First things first, it was time to lean on a few old colleagues. I said, listen, take me to uh, the uh, SISs. You know, I need to speak to the guy there. With his clearance, Carlton was able to request any and all intel that might help him paint a clearer picture of the threats facing O'Brien in Baghdad. And in 2003, there was no shortage of those. Next stop, his American allies and more gear. So I then say, we can't just use these two vehicles to pick your man up. That's just, it's just not enough. So I go to the American and I've been given a name by my American colleague from AFI's all those years back. And he gives me the name of a Hispanic-American guy, great guy, who's heading up the Army CID. And I said to him, listen, I'm bringing in, you know, equivalent to a five-star. This guy's big guy, so what can you give me? Carlton secured an armed escort for his principal, complete with helicopters patrolling the skies above Baghdad International Airport. In terms of prevention, he'd done all he could. But an A-squad officer also has to make contingencies for when things don't go to plan. We do what we do. I'll go to the hospitals, try and say, you know, if something happens, what's the connection with the field hospital, if our man gets in, and all the bits you do in protection, and all the backup bits you need. And people on the bridges, can you put some tanks on the bridges so if something happens, you know, the bridges are denied to them. And we start putting the package together for Michael Bryan. And then I finally get my stats going and we come, in fact, General Figures, who was the UK general in charge of the operation, General Figures said, well, I can get you back to London in full. After a few gruelling days, Carlton was able to make the necessary preparations in time for the all-important conference. The minister was primed to enter Baghdad. There was just one last teensy consideration. The actual location of the meet. If Carlton couldn't figure that out, then Mike O'Brien would have no opportunity to stake Britain's claim to the spoils of war. But I, I didn't even know where the meet was. So I had to try and find out where the meet was. So we found out that it was going to be in the conference centre. So I had to secure the conference centre. Hopefully, you'll never have to secure a building full of VIPs. But here's how it's done. The United States had M1 Abrams tanks all the way through and around the building, actually. They must have used up 20 tanks to secure the perimeter of that building. Then, as you come on the outer perimeter, they had military police to secure the outer perimeter of it. They were using helicopters above, at the time, probably about 15, 20 you know, spinning round. And then when you come into the building, you're then starting to keep putting people at certain locations everywhere. All the vulnerable locations you can see. You need areas what you have hardened already. So, you know, if anything does happen, because anything can happen at any stage, hardened areas that you can already go to, that are already set aside for you and your principles. Then there's comms. You need the infrastructure in place to keep everyone in the loop. It's a lot of people, they need to be connected to you. You need to be connected to them via radio communications so you understand what's going on. And last but not least, the all-important exit strategy. What's the way out? So, you know, do we have helis, vehicles, whatever to get us out if something does happen? In this case, Carlton found that the Americans had already done most of the work in terms of securing the conference centre. And in retrospect, 
He finds it slightly odd that the US had kept the timing and location stunned for so long. Almost as though they wanted to narrow the playing field. They probably wanted to wait. Their argument was, they said, we didn't know until very close, i.e. a day before, what we could actually secure and knew was ours. Right? I don't believe that because, as I said, I was there two, three days before at the convent centre, a colonel showed me around, and they had it pretty much secured. So, listen, it's just the game's being played. Yeah, everybody's in it for they get out of it. Mike O'Brien arrived in Baghdad a few days later. So we set it all up with their assistance, and a good job was done, and... Michael Brown was able to put what he wanted to put as far as what the UK should get out of this war. And that was the operation. It had been a success. But Carlton was well aware that given the slightly slapdash nature of the operation, things could have gone much worse. I came back basically after that, after that operation and our woeful under-preparedness. I basically put forward a paper to a great guy who was a really capable individual, David Vaness, who was head of counter-terrorism for the United Kingdom, who was Deputy Assistant Commissioner of the Met. And I said to Axel, listen, this is woeful. I mean, we were lucky we came back with our lives. We need real equipment. We need a unit that can be made and created. So I created a unit called the High Threat Law Infrastructure. Then we did joint training with RMP and learn to use their equipment. So if anything ever goes wrong in such a high threat circumstance and they are there, we can use their minimis, their equipment. Carlton's high threat, low infrastructure unit served in several more protection operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, including the one we heard about at the beginning of this episode. Today, Carlton lives a quieter life, as well as publishing his memoir, Black Ops, the incredible true story of a British secret agent He's the host of his own podcast, The Black Spy Podcast. What I aim to do with The Black Spy Podcast is basically lift the light on the world of secret intelligence, national security and armed governmental personal protection operations and where that connects with the geopolitics of the world. Because I think that people need to understand what people do, we people in this arena, do in your name. Why we do it, why it's important. So each episode basically has somebody from wherever or whatever in the world. It's an eclectic mix of individuals. They've generally got an interest in the secret world and the world of geopolitics. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Here's a taste of next week's Covert Encounter with True Spies. <laughs>